There's no getting away from the fact that summers seem to be getting hotter across the world, with reports of record-breaking high temperatures hitting the headlines. But what impact is this having on World War II reenacting, and is it ever practical or safe to attempt a weekend of living history in the middle of a heat wave? Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris again here with Ben. How are you doing today, Ben? Well, Chris, I believe I am melting to death. Okay, so we're going to be getting into that today for our topic. We're going to be talking about uh, reenacting in extreme heat. Yeah, Um, not to jump right into it, but to jump right into it, I kid. (laughs) Before we get started, I did just want to say uh, a special thank you to everyone who supports us via Patreon, and a very special thank you to our newest Patreon supporter, William. Thank you very much. Glad to have you on board. And without the support of the uh, people who donate via Patreon, we wouldn't be able to keep this podcast going. So thank you very much. Thank you, William. Okay, so at the time of recording this, we are on day five of what is predicted to be a six-day heat wave here in our region. And um, a heat wave here is defined as three or more days above 90 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm actually going to see what, I'm actually going to look up and see what 90 degrees is in Celsius. European viewers, stand by. They're not really viewers, they're listeners, but... uh, Listeners, forgive me. All right. (laughs) The heat has melted my brain. Here where we live, a heat wave is, uh, it's defined as three or more days where the temperature is above 90 degrees Fahrenheit, which is equivalent to about 32 degrees Celsius. So we are on day five of that, and we expect another uh, day tomorrow over 90 degrees. And just a couple of weeks ago, we had another heat wave. So um, I think already this year... Here, where we live, we are over the the average number of days in a year that is above 90 degrees Fahrenheit, and uh, we still have some more weeks of August to go, and no doubt we'll have more of these days. So definitely a, a hotter than average summer here. Now, Chris, didn't you say earlier off air that this is some sort of record? Well, we've broken several individual day records yeah. for you know the hot like Thursday. Last Thursday was the hottest. Um, day for that date on record and then on Saturday it tied the record Um, I where I work uh, I do actually have a job I don't just reenact professionally where I work you don't is uh, not air-conditioned and is inside an old factory building with lots of windows and on hot sunny days it's like a solar oven and it actually gets hotter inside than it is even outside so it's been over 100 degrees Fahrenheit at my work for days in a row and um, I actually I really didn't do very much over this last weekend because I I think I got like a heat injury last week at work I think I had uh, heat exhaustion and I've just been feeling really kind of sick and sort of run down so I spent a lot of time in air conditioning this weekend to recuperate and I'm thinking to myself okay well is this just You know, obviously it gets hot in the summertime. I live in the same area where I've lived my whole life. Um, 
I've been able to get through summers without basically being deactivated by the heat. Is this just how it is to become elderly and feeble and decrepit? But then today I found out that the last three weeks in Boston were the had the highest average temperature of any three-week period ever recorded in, in the city of Boston. And these records go back to the, uh, the 1870s. Jeez, that's brutal. So what that means is that my in the state where I live, my, my parents were born in this state. My grandparents were born in this state. None of those people experienced a three-week period that has been as hot as the three-week period that has just ended. And, of course, it's still hot today, and it's going to be hot again tomorrow. Yeah, um... Chris, we hung out on Saturday, and I had to do some bullshit in the morning dealing with my car and some other things, and so I was outside for three or four hours or something in the early part of the day, and it just deactivated me. Like, I wish to, like, lie prone on the ground um, for, like, a, a couple of hours um, that just recuperate if you will um and i hear it's not much better in other parts of the country um other parts of the world too. other parts it's of the world too. headlines i'm sure that uh most of the people listening to this you've been experiencing heat yeah um you know i i think it's weird that this has kind of become a political thing from my perspective climate change is kind of obvious i'm not um i don't pretend to know what the causes are because i'm not a scientist and that's not my job to study these things, but uh, the summers have definitely been getting hotter where I live, and I see it also in the fall where the um, the trees don't change color until later. It's warmer uh, later in the year. We have less snow usually, uh, so you know it's it's a changing world. It is indeed a changing world. Like, it's funny. Um, there was a bay uh, on Cape Cod where my family used to go, and... I remember when I was a child, you would see some ice on the bay. You know, I was, this is probably back in the late 90s, early 2000s. There was some ice in the bay that would form. I have not seen ice on the bay in the last five years, if not 10. Now, my grandfather told me that back in, when he was a child in the 1930s, there would, the, the whole bay would ice over to the point where you could drive a car out onto the ice. And so, look, I'm not here to argue if climate change is caused by man or if it's a natural phenomenon, but the world is, in fact, changing. And so... The this win- is going to factor into our discussion today because, um, you know, we look at uh, photographs from World War II and see the uniforms that soldiers are wearing and understand the climate in which they are operating. And uh, I think we would basically... Uh, it would be our demise if we tried to do like combat operations in the summertime, you know, in high heat, in wool uniforms, or even in the uh, the tropical uniforms that sure. for the desert. But I think that, uh, you know, I, I haven't actually sat down and crunched any numbers, but I do think that in most parts of the world, it's probably warmer now than it was even during World War II. Yeah, um, I... Chris, Chris, I know you also love jackets. I love jackets and coats. I have quite a lot of World War II jackets and coats. And I almost feel like we're facing a future where many of these heavy coats we might never get to wear again, you know? Or like that the opportunity to wear them will diminish year by year. I bought a a Soviet surplus uh, fur coat from a seller in Russia. And um, 
after I paid him, he said, you know, this was my uh, coat that I wore in the wintertime sometimes on the coldest days, and it doesn't get cold enough to wear it anymore. In Russia, too. Wow. And I probably haven't worn that coat in two years. Yeah. Is that the rubberized one? Yeah, it's like a black uh, post-war nice. uh, Bakesha, a naval one. Uh, it's waterproof. It's an awesome coat if you're going to be out there in sub-zero temperatures, but... Um, Lately, we haven't had that kind of weather here. Now, this is a total aside. I honestly think that, it, like, if reenacting in the cold presents extra challenges that people don't really consider, I really don't think a large scale, um, like, full winter immersion or tactical is really practical. I know smaller scale ones have happened, but if you want to have hundreds of participants, like, the snow makes parking an issue, um, you have to worry about people getting frostbite, I really just don't think it's practical or safe. Um, and I feel like, I don't know, Chris, have you ever seen, like, a dead of winter event in your lifetime? Well, um, I've done some, right? Like, uh, some of those Fort Indian Town Gap events were extremely cold yeah. and there was snow. Yeah. Um, it, it's something that can be done, and I, but I think, I think this is something that a lot of reenactors talk about and think about. And I think for whatever reason, I feel like I've seen less discussion about reenacting in extreme heat, which is what we're going to discuss today. Mm. Um, so yeah, we can do a cold weather episode when the winter comes back. If people who are interested in uh, cold weather reenacting should look back at uh, there was an old episode with Lassa and a guest. Um, that's a two part episode about reenacting in in extreme cold. Um, we've never had a discussion on the podcast about reenacting in the very hottest days of summer. So we're going to do that now. Now, a couple of disclaimers before we start. First of all. Uh, I am not attending any events probably this summer. So the information, kind of the uh, personal experience that I'm going to be talking about is from years past. So, And that. likewise mine. I have not also done an event this summer. So, yeah. And then the other thing that I think is very important to say is that I'm not a trained medical professional. I'm not a first responder. I don't have any kind of like training on how to recognize the signs of heat injury or um, anything like that. So everything that I say here should just be taken as like a total layman personal experience thing. And like you shouldn't be making any decisions about what to do or not to do based on anything that you hear here on this podcast. So having said that, uh, Ben, what do you think was the, you know, what were some of the hottest reenactments that you ever attended? We talked about this earlier bef- off air. Um, I think the hottest event I ever did was War and Peace 2018 in the United Kingdom. Now, when you think of the UK, I feel like the stereotype is, you know, dreary days and rain and so... I, I I was there during a previous like record heat, um, like for the area of Kent and actually maybe even the whole country. Now I believe recently in the UK there was you know a period of extreme heat that surpassed uh, the record in 2018 where it was even hotter. But I remember it was it was it was over 30 degrees centigrade. Um, it was in the 90s in Fahrenheit, um, and it was just brutally 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 hot. Um, and it was very fun. It was, it was somewhat humorous to me because I felt like, you know, we, I was used to 90 degree summers from America. I had some experience with this. Um, I mean this, I mean this 
strictly in jest, but my British friends mostly did not seem to really have much experience with the heats and were broiling alive. And it was also funny, there were some people from Scandinavia at that event, and they also were basically turning red. Um, yeah, we didn't have any heat casualties, so I feel like I can joke about this, um, or you no know, heat casualties from the people who I was hanging out with, but uh, we... The heat really deactivated us. It was a public event, um, and we basically spent the day lounging around under awnings and trying to drink as much water as possible. Like, we, the only sort of immersive thing that we did was we reenacted, we, we would go swimming in this river, which honestly was probably pretty filthy, but it was still refreshing. And then we reenacted a the crossing of a river um, where we made a raft out of zeltbahn panels and filled them with reeds and straw and it worked um and so you know there's some very funny photos of us you know we're like wearing steel helmets but you know just you know either undergarments or bathing suits and swimming across this river um so yeah that was that was a lot of fun um I've done a lot of events over the years in the heat of summer, different kinds of events. I've done public display events, uh, tacticals, and also uh, training events, which are some of the hottest events that I can remember. When I got started in reenacting, it was um, 20-something years ago, so uh, things were different, and uniforms were a lot more expensive. And... um, I didn't have enough money to buy like multiple uniforms. I could really only afford to buy a basic kit. So for the first several years of reenacting, every single event that I did, I was wearing the same wool tunic and trousers and uh, a service shirt underneath it. And I would just get absolutely drenched. I would soak through my shirt. I would soak through the wool uniform. Now, Chris, I know that you said that you wore a service shirt. I have basically just worn the wool tunic with either you know a, a a tank top or you know just my my bare skin underneath and i really haven't felt irritated by it um i actually the wool is a little scratchy but it didn't really bother my skin too much you have well, you it's, tried it's this it's funny that you say that because um back then when i wore the wool uniform all summer long i would wear like period style boxer shorts mm. and now that sounds really uncomfortable to me. Mm. You know, when I think about that now, like now I always wear long underwear bottoms when I wear my wool uniform. And uh, it seems weird to me that, that I used to have no problem doing that. But um, what, had, what happened for me eventually was I got a really good deal on a used HBT tunic, just the field blouse part of the uniform. And... I started to do some summer events wearing the wool trousers and the HBT jacket, and I felt so much better at the reenactments that I was doing. And I remember the help available in my unit at the time saying, you know, I don't think you ever realized how how much wearing the wool all summer and running around doing tacticals and stuff, I don't think you realized how much that was taking out of you. Um, now, look, people will tell you that wool is a good uh, warm weather fabric because it breathes. Uh, In my experience, when it's really hot and humid, the wool uniform is extremely hot and uncomfortable to wear. And look, I mean, I can imagine actually a very thin wool garment might 
be okay in the summer, but I feel like the grade of wool that the German Feldbluse is made out of is a bit thicker than optimal for the summer. You know, it's possible that um, I am just a absolutely spoiled uh, 21st century man who sleeps in air conditioning every night, and as a result, I just don't have the guts or the metal or, you know, what, what made men of previous generations what they were. Like, I just don't have this because I've eaten too much soy or you know (laughs) absorb too many microplastics or whatever but uh like i just there is certain when when the temperature hits you know 90 plus degrees and it's got we've got tropical humidity like almost anything more than a t-shirt is like feels like a ordeal or a burden to me well chris you have called me a lizard person um i actually unabashedly like the summer um, I really do. I love the long hours of daylight. I love, especially at the beginning of it, how lush everything is. I was actually really enjoying uh, this summer, but I realized that my favorite time of year is probably the month before and the month after the summer solstice. And by by mid to late July, my favorite time of the year has ended. Um, and it's funny, I actually, I really think I made the most of what I regard to be my favorite time of year this year. I did a lot of stuff with my friends, I did a lot of stuff outside, but around about mid-July we got the first heat wave, and honestly, it pains me to say it, but autumn weather is sounding pretty alright right about now. Well, Ben, you like to wear, um, you know, in your day-to-day life when you're not at reenactments, you like to wear shorts, you know, which I don't do just from a human dignity perspective. <laughs> Go to hell. Uh, <laughs> yes, I do like to wear shorts. I do not wear big boy pants the summer. I will say I it. Um, <laughs> you know, I, the, the only time I've worn shorts as an adult really was for reenacting. I used to wear, you know, so after um, this kind of interlude where I had an HBT uniform, my reenactment group decided to transition to wearing tropical uniforms in the summer to better dial into historical realities for um, Italy, which is where the unit that we were portraying was based in the summers of 1943 and 1944. So I got a whole tropical set, which included, I bought um, a tunic, trousers, um, shorts, the tropical shirt, tropical necktie and I used to wear that at summer events and uh, wearing the shorts definitely like shorts and the tropical service shirt was like a nice cool outfit but the full tropical uniform with the tunic and trousers was really oppressively hot I found that's interesting I mean I don't know not as hot as wool but the thickness of this fabric it's like it's like denim so it's like you're wearing, you know, the so-called Canadian tuxedo, where you're wearing a yeah. uh, a denim jacket and denim trousers. Now they're baggier than jeans, though, so you have some, you know, room to move around. But I, I, I've held the old. You had a lost battalion uniform, right? Yes, I did. It. I mean, it's marvelous. It's marvelously thick material. It's very hard wearing. I mean, I actually, I don't know if I've actually ever held an original uh, tropical garment. But you had those shorts. Oh yes, I did. And they it compares in my experience tro- original tropical fabric does compare very well mm. to the reproductions that mm. Lost Battalions in Texas used to make years ago. Yep. And that's what I used to wear. And yeah, it was definitely a hard wearing uh, material. You know, I used that stuff very hard. I got I got stained, it got filthy, but I never put a hole in anything. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Lost Battalion 
pour one out. But um, I mean, I think Lost Battalions is still in business today under new ownership. Uh, you know, I haven't placed an order with them in their new incarnation. Yeah, that's right. Fair enough. Fair enough. But uh, regardless, I don't. I don't know that you could get a tropical uniform from them anymore. Sure. So sure. I, in, in, you know, people listening to this, um, don't get too excited because I actually don't really know uh, enough about tropical uniforms to really kind of render any sort of. Uh, recommendation on where you could get something like that now and I really don't I really don't either like I don't even really know what the options are that you know I uh, tropical uniforms are kind of a, a field of study on all their own and there was a very uh, popular and successful reenactment event earlier this year in Texas where people were portraying uh, the German Africa Corps and uh, you know a lot of people went a lot of tropical uniforms so definitely it's a it's a segment of the hobby that that exists and you know is getting some hype but uh, it's just not something that I really know anything about yeah anymore. we're getting off on a total tangent I really like the aesthetic of the Africa Corps I think it's I think the tropical uniform is cool looking but I've just come to realize that I really don't think there's going to be an opportunity locally for me to ever portray it so yeah, I don't know. What were we talking about, Chris? Shorts? Oh, yeah, the picture. There is a picture of you wearing, you know, I think you're wearing like a wool tunic and tropical shorts, and it is just very, very, very funny yeah, to me. Yeah, that was not one of my, like, best looks. You know, that's not something that I would really revisit. I would, I would argue that's, that was your worst look. It, it almost certainly was my very worst look. Um, but thinking back on just uh, events that I've done in the summer, uh some of the hottest were uh, training events that I used to do with my old group where we kind of did an annual August um, training event. August being a time of year where there was often, or just I think July too, July and August were months that were always uh, often kind of light for us in terms of when reenactment events are scheduled. I mean, the spring can be busy. The fall typically for us has been very busy. Um, winter there's there's often events but in the summertime there was often a lull and so we would use that time to plan uh, a training event where we would go over just as a group we would go over basic skills that um, are helpful to reenactors things that soldiers would have known for example we would do uh, training on uh, rifle drill marching formations and that kind of thing and uh depending on the year that we did it, those events could be, you know, huge successes or they could be uh, negatively impacted by the heat. It's funny. So I believe I have been reenacting as of this fall 10 years. I believe I have only ever done two tacticals in the summertime um, in this span of time. Um, summers, some of the crisp are always light for me, I feel like. There's just... There's less of a there's less events, you know. I mean, I I definitely have also done training events this summer. I feel like those are the more the more popular events to have in the summertime, or public displays. Last year we did a tactical in July. It, was it in July in Gettysburg? You know what? That was a tactical. Okay, three. All right. So last year we did a tactical in July. It was a hot summery weekend. Um, I wore my wool uniform, which I kept uh, buttoned all the way up to the top and with the sleeves rolled down the you entire are time insane. I was there. I don't know what I was trying to prove. I mean, I was absolutely soaked with sweat, but I did it. It was fun. Um, you are insane. 
thinking about tacticals I've done, we used to do an annual tactical in Vermont that was in July every year. And again, this was a case where if you got lucky, you might be doing an event where the high temperature was in the low to mid 80s and it could be really nice, especially um, there was a likelihood of that happening to some extent because this was in Vermont, which is north of here in northern New England, and it is a little bit cooler there. It was up in the hills a little bit too. That's cool. Um, but if you get if you don't get that, you'd be doing an event with temperatures in the 90s, and then um, it can just be really physically taxing. I think uh, people who listen to this, who have physical jobs, who participate in sports in the summertime, you know how uh, draining it can be when you're try when you're like when your heart is pumping and um, you're out of breath and it's also 90 degrees and humid, you know, that can, can happen so fast that you feel weak like that. That Smolensk tactical last summer that I did, um, I think that was probably one of the hottest tacticals ever done. And the temperature was, I think in the eighties, like I cannot imagine doing a tactical in the nineties. I know it's been done, but it just, it sounds grueling. you know, I'm sure there's people who are listening to this or being like, you know, you, you're just weak, but um, and you know maybe maybe there's some truth to that too, right? I yeah, mean, sure. uh, if we were uh, people who um, you know worked outside cutting lumber in the forest all day every day and uh, slept in like a non-climate controlled environment, I mean, I think you can that can toughen you up and you kind yeah. of acclimatize to the we, temperature. We've talked about this in reference to the cold, but I think it is possible in reference to the heat as well. You know, I feel like if you don't have air conditioning and you're just exposed to it, you build up a tolerance to it, you know, like sure. you need to be able to sleep and function. And so you just... Right. Human beings did this for literally millions yeah, of years, right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, there still are people who, you know, live in the tropics and are able to function in very hot temperatures. So Yeah, that might be like the norm in like large swaths of the world. Sure, right? sure, sure. I mean, I think any person who lives in a country that's close to the equator is probably very well versed in how to function in the heat. Um, so, yeah. And, you know, I, I think you bring up a, a good point there, which is that there are things that you can do when it's really hot. Um to to function basically and we i you know i wanted to get touch on that a little bit uh with regard to those training events that i mentioned so an an advantage to doing the training events in the summertime not only did it kind of fill a gap in the schedule but when it's just your unit and what you do at the event is up to you it gives you a tremendous amount of flexibility in terms of what it is that you actually do so we had a lot of uh physical activity that was built into the training events we uh our unit leadership used to operate an obstacle course and they would time you as you did this course you know and it was just like uh set up some obstacles that were maybe similar to what you might encounter in a reenactment battlefield and you would have to run through this and and the first person who did it the fastest would get like an award certificate which is pretty cool that is Um, cool but of course, when it's uh, when it's a hundred degrees out, um, literally running and jumping and sprinting over obstacles is uh, going to be a, a challenge for almost anybody. So, um, you know, thinking back to the times when it was really hot, we would do the physical activity part early in the morning when it was still cool, or we would do it. Um, late at night after it cooled off not late at night right but in the evening and then i think there were some times that we just decided to kind of scrap that and instead focus on stuff that could be done in a more sedate way in a shaded place where it's cooler like um 
we would do, do like a classroom type activity where we would just all kind of sit in the shade and go over some stuff. We would all uh, pass around a, some, a song lyric sheet or someone would hand out lyrics to a song and we would uh, practice singing a song so that we could learn to sing a World War II German marching song in unison. Um, you know, from a training event perspective, there's a lot of stuff that you can do that isn't... Um, like putting yourself at risk of heat stroke on a really hot day when you're wearing an uncomfortable uniform. Now, I will say every event that I have done in the heat, um, there have been sources of water. Um, so I think that's definitely essential for any events in the heat. You know, like people in leadership positions, just making sure all the men are drinking water. Everybody's got a full canteen. I feel like this is sort of common sense for uh for reenactments and i'm sure chris your training event training event experiences sort of reflect that too no well we would have to have you know someone would have to bring water most of the places where we were doing the training events didn't have like a spigot so we had to bring gallons and gallons and gallons of water it's unbelievable how much water a group of men can go through when they're sweating you know of course for the training event stuff when it was really hot it would be like you don't have to put your tunic on or whatever, right? We would change the uniform expectations for certain activities depending on um, whether or not there was like a risk of people overheating or how uncomfortable it was going to be or not. Sure, sure. Um, you know, I I mentioned we did did that tactical last year where I wore the wool uniform. I think about like a lot of events that I did in the summertime where we would wear the wools. There was a, uh, a D-Day a public display at Fort Tabor that we did years ago. Um, and we decided we wanted to portray the the typical appearance of German soldiers as they looked at uh, on D-Day. And most of the defenders on those beaches were wearing wool uniforms. So that's what we decided to do. Everyone's going to wear the wool uniform. And there were some people that were uh, kind of upset about it. You know, this is summertime in Massachusetts. It's going to be uncomfortable. But as it turned out, that event wound up being really rainy and cool. Mm. And so it wound up kind of being, I mean, it, I think it was weather maybe sort of similar in some ways to uh, what the weather was like act on, on D-Day in Normandy, France. Well, it's very funny because I actually went to Normandy in around the time the invasion happened, late May, early, late May into early June, back in 2018. And, you know, I was... You know, I, I was in a different part of Europe where it was very hot, and I assumed that Normandy would be the same. And so I only brought a pair of I only brought shorts to wear. And in actuality, it, Normandy is a very cool place. Um, it, I, I mean that it's a cool place, but also it is a cool place. Um, there, I, I believe it was probably in the '60s when I was there. It was very rainy. It was uh, very foggy. Um, and you see original photographs of, you know, the Americans, they're wearing, you know, the, they're wearing M41 uh, field jackets and wool trousers. And the Germans, they're wearing, you know, full wool uniform. And that wasn't because they were, fo- that wasn't, that wasn't stupid. Um, they were wearing those uniforms in the summertime because it was most likely cold and rainy there. So, Yeah. Well, that's something that we kind of lose sight of a lot of the time is that here in North America where we live, I might have mentioned this on the podcast before, but uh, like Boston is on the same latitude as Rome, Italy. And in Rome, Italy, German soldiers were wearing uh, summer uniforms, including tropical uniforms, because it was it was hot in the summertime. Um, sure. You know, had 
had German soldiers invaded mainland USA, I don't think they would have been wearing wool uniforms here all summer long. You know, the we, we see these uh, pictures of guys uh, wearing wool uniforms in the summertime, but the climate is, is not the same as where we live. Yeah. And yeah. so when I... Uh, pl- when I am able to choose scenarios for events that we have helped to organize or, or hosted in the past, um, I have always tried to do stuff that was based in areas of the Eastern Front where uh, there's a lot of documentation for the wear of the HBT uniforms in warm weather. That's cool. So the HBT uniform is absolutely my uh, go-to and is the way that I prefer to reenact in the summer. Um, I love my wool uniform. I love wearing it in cool weather. But when it's hot out there, if I'm going to be doing a reenactment, I very much prefer to be wearing the HBT uniform. These were issued to every World War II German Army soldier. Um, They were very widely used in a lot of different settings. And basically, for almost everything that I want to be doing in reenactment, I think that the HBT uniform is ideal. And I think that they're they're really comfortable in the summertime. You can opt to wear them without – you wear the jacket without a shirt underneath, and you could – unbutton the collar you can roll the sleeves up if you want and it's like breezy it's it's easy breezy beautiful (laughs) well they're linen too which is a delightful material it's very very easy breezy beautiful you know um linen's very cool i feel like a lot of actually it's funny i I've been to Puerto Rico, and a lot of the clothes they wear down there are made out of linen, and you can see why. It's a it's a wonderfully breathable material. Sure, yeah. Um, I just I, I could I could go on and on about how how ideal I think that these garments are for uh, reenacting use in the summertime. You know, one of the things that I love to do uh, in the summertime is uh, go swimming. And many, many times in hot weather events, we've been lucky enough to be at a site where there's some kind of opportunity for going swimming. And uh, that at the end of a long day, especially if it's like a tactical type situation, you've been physically exerting yourself, you're soaked in sweat, you're maybe covered in dust, you're dirty. And then if you can kind of strip down and go into a cool, natural body of water uh, at a reenactment, like nothing beats that refreshment, if you ask me. Yeah, I love swimming in the summertime. I actually, I'm a little remiss that I haven't done as much this summer. Um, and swimming at a reenactment, mm, c'est bon. It um, is the best. It Chef's is the, kiss. It is the best. Um, I, I recall we did like a timeline event, you know, early in my reenacting career up in Vermont. I did it a couple of years in a row. And it was, I think it was in either late, Late July or early August, it was this time of year, it was very, very, very hot, um, and I remember there was this sort of very sort of shallow stream that flowed behind the sights, and I just went for a dip, um, and I remember it wasn't even deep enough to like really immerse my whole self, like I had to find like the deepest place, and then I just had to kind of like lie down in the water, um, and uh yeah that's funny ben because i had that exact same experience at a reenactment the only time in my life that i've ever tried to go swimming in like a little tiny brook um we used to do these training events in west boylston massachusetts and there was like a little brook that ran uh, adjacent to the property or through you know on at the bottom of like this weird ravine thing and uh 
I just went down there and was just kind of slithering around in there like a salamander. <laughs> oh, that's great, dude. That's really funny. We do. Uh, we have done events annually for many years. Um, you know, most of the time at uh, Odessa, New York, in September. Oh yeah, the Odessa Pond. <laughs> that event takes place the weekend after Labor Day, which is in the fall. Well, it's in the you know astronomical summer but uh like sort of culturally or traditionally here in the united states uh labor day is like viewed as the end of summer so i guess from a weather perspective the event takes place kind of in the transition between summer and fall and we had an event there a few years ago where temperatures were in the 90s and we had gotten there early we had gotten there with permission of the event hosts we were there like days before the event was even scheduled to begin and uh, we had not really planned for doing that event in those temperatures. If that event was scheduled to take place in July or August instead of in September, we would have approached it very differently from the start. But instead, you know, we, we are kind of familiar with doing it in um, September weather. So what that wound up meaning from a practical standpoint for us was that we had to go to like the store on like a daily basis and get more water. Because it was before the event started, so the event wasn't supplying water. There was no, like, spigot on the property or whatever. And we were just, we, like, brought enough, what we thought would be enough water to kind of get us started. But, I mean, we were just running out of water constantly because guys were so thirsty. Wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Was that the event where we literally witnessed the change of season? We got there, it was like 90, and we left, and it actually felt like fall? Yeah, I think that was the event. Like, yeah. I remember, yeah, I do remember this. We had to go down to, what, like, the local... Mini Mart, which the is Dandy Mart. The Dandy Mart, which I just find to be a glorious name for a little Mart, you know? <laughs> yeah, that. Uh, yeah, I remember we making that. daily trips to Dandy Mart to get um, gallons of water to that's refill our right. water containers. That's right, that's right. You know, and I, I you know, like the, we were like, okay, this should be enough. And then it was like the next day, it's like, wow, we got to go again. Wow, that's very funny. That That's like the biggest logistical consideration, obviously, for uh, warm weather events. I mean, besides just kind of making sure that you aren't pushing people beyond their limits so that they're getting heat stroke and, you know, that like heat injury can be, you know, it can be fatal, right? It can, it can be a real medical emergency. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've even, I've definitely seen people at events. Uh, I've never been personally afflicted. But I've definitely seen people at events who have been heat casualty or borderline heat casualty and, Somebody who's suffering from heat injury doesn't does not look good. They're not having a good time. It's no joke. Sure. Um, so you know, uh, some something that I've heard from people who are outdoorsmen. Uh, this is kind of an opinion based thing, but they say if you if you are packing water out when you leave, that means you brought enough water, and uh, that is something that I kind of tried to represent and reenacting sort of where I am trying to bring so much water that I'm taking water home because it's it's definitely better to have more than enough than than not enough I, I agree with that I relate to that um I feel like sometimes I complain that I actually bring too much food to events but I will never complain about bringing too much water to an event I in, in all honesty, I don't really understand. One of the many mysteries of World War II for me is how German soldiers managed to do everything that they did with that 0.7 liter canteen. It was, it's very small. They had a one liter. Um, they issued it to 
soldiers stationed in the desert and mountain troopers and medics. But yeah, I feel the like standard canteen is 0.7 liters. Now, and you cannot get very far from home base with 0.7 liters of water as far as doesn't and and, you know i I feel like i've seen original photographs of american soldiers who will carry two canteens of water very rarely do i see german soldiers carrying two canteens of water i feel like i might have seen like a medic carrying two canteens like or i feel like i may see i may have seen some photos from the africa corps where they have two canteens but almost never Almost never on the continent do you see German soldiers carrying more than one canteen. Well, so. this this ties in, you know, Ben, maybe you had a similar experience uh, during your travels in Europe, maybe not. But uh, with the time that I spent in Germany in the summers, I was like constantly amazed at how little people drank. Like, and I, I don't mean drank alcohol because I was amazed by how much they did drink. I mean, I was amazed <laughs> by the meal would come they have a small glass of water, you know, very small, like the size of a salt shaker or something. And they're like eating a big meal and that is their water. And it's just like, I'm, I'm dying. I can't, you know, like maybe it's just a problem with me, like the result of centuries of dysgenic breeding or something. But like, (laughs) I am like, I am basically chugging water like all the time in the summer. Yeah, I agree. I I believe I saw similar in Europe, and it it is strange and remarkable. You know, I will also say, I just think older people in general, maybe this is just like the older people in my life, but like my my father will routinely eat a meal with no beverage. It's like, how are you doing that? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, (laughs) maybe people of the past, like, just drank less fluids or I don't know. I don't really know. But uh, that's very funny because I feel like there's like a meme going around, like drink enough water, you know, like. (laughs) Sure. Um, You know, we 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 have to talk about this, like some of the other scourges of summer reenacting. And uh, one of them, of course, is the sun itself. (laughs) And I have seen that wreak absolute havoc on guys. You know, I remember we used to do this air show in Rhode Island um, that was in June. And it was, you're out there on the tarmac. And there was like no shade. And I just remember one guy at the end of the event on Sunday taking off his like overseas cap, his Schiffian's style cap. And his entire head is as red as a tomato and he has this like very, very obvious, like blinding white uh, sort of inverted triangle on his forehead from where he's been wearing his hat all weekend. Oh, I got one for you. Um, so our, this is back at War and Peace, which is one of the hottest events I think I've ever done, as I stated. And there was a man from Sweden there. Um, and so obviously a Scandinavian man, not really... You don't really associate Scandinavia with, you know, extreme heat in the summer, I mean. And so this poor guy, he had basically, he hadn't really been, he hadn't been wearing a shirt all event, you know, because it was so hot. He was just in his suspenders, trousers, etc. And, uh, you know, his, his entire chest was, you know, red and pink, except for an oval where he was wearing his Erkenningsmarke, the, uh, the, the, the German dog tech. <laughs> Sure. Weird, weird tan lines of World War Two. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. Um, you know, there are people I know who have uh, explored various like 
ways to repackage sunblock you know like there were ointments to protect you from the sun at the time i have never used any of this stuff my strategy has always been to just like seek shade you know i have very fair skin my ancestors came from the british isles uh there's a lot of uh burning that happens with me very instantly when exposed yeah you get the mater dude you yeah, get, I get the... the cherry tomato for a head uh instantly so like when i'm in a reenactment if i'm in the sun i'm keeping my sleeves rolled down and i am trying to be in the shade and uh like at one point we were looking at doing a uh, a public display that was going to be in august and it was going to be on a fairgrounds we didn't actually wind up doing this event but prior to the event i actually cut down some saplings and created a sort of like a I, I, I buttoned together some Zeltbahn shelter quarters and made a great big triangle out of them. And I had three poles that were made out of these saplings. And I was like, I am not going to this event if there's not going to be any shade. We need to be able to create shade. We don't have like a large tent. I didn't want to bring like a giant Zeltbahn tent configuration. And so I rigged up this sort of... Uh, fly or something the sunshade uh contraption because i just i think the year before that this thing that i'm thinking about um i had done a public display that was in like the spring and wound up getting a bad sunburn and uh i, I just don't want to have to do that again was this display at the fairground in brockton massachusetts no it was actually maybe it was yeah it was it was it like a weird sort of benefit for a child who had some yeah, sort of a disease i think it might have been that one i in fact went to that event i don't remember much about it except it was just brutally brutally hot sure very strange event too it was like when the uh, the premise for this event was probably one of the weirdest i've ever been to it was like a benefit for a child who had some sort of i don't know but i don't know if it was a terminal disease but some sort of like a bad disease that you don't want um and there were world war ii reenactors there and also a bunch of bikers showed up too and it was the kid seemed disinterested in the reenactors um yeah i i don't really know why i was there um just like a weird weird memory uh that's sort of flitting about from the early days in my hobby um, yeah <laughs> um, another summer scourge is the bugs uh, yeah actually uh, do you remember the main zone i feel like they were pretty bad there yeah uh they were uh, they were bad now that you mention it but they are actually that event that we did in maine which i think that was, event was in august that event sort of pales in comparison to some of the worst bug events that i remember having gone to yeah um we did a training event at a site that was basically in a swamp and as soon as the sun went down, the it was just like the air was thick with mosquitoes. You were faced with this sheer wall of biting insects, and they were just on you. And guys were um, covering themselves with bug spray, and it was like barely making a dent in the insects crawling on your skin. You know, they were just. I think they were like coming up out of the. They were coming up out of the water that day, uh, and they were hungry. Yeah. And, they, and there you were. And um, guys trying to sleep had rigged up all kinds of contraptions. The, some of the guys 
I was kind of sneering about this at the time, had brought mosquito netting and, and dowels and kind of erected um, little mosquito tents inside the tent. And like, I might have been laughing when they set those things up, but like those guys got to sleep. Well, look, I mean, you read about accounts of warfare or not even just warfare, but like life in the tropics. And these are things that, you know, you hear soldiers or just people do. Um yeah, because the insects, not only do they bite you and irritate you, but sometimes they might have malaria or other diseases, and so it's just, you don't so want not, them. Not just in the tropics, but now even where we live, yeah. there are um, mosquito-borne diseases, not malaria, but uh, that triple E. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, they, yeah, that's... And like Zika virus and yeah. some kind of like some other stuff. There's some nasty stuff that you can get from mosquito bites. So. Now, I do actually... I do highly recommend, I think Virus Julaka has them, but uh, the Bundeswehr mosquito nets. Now, there is some debate, uh, you know, Chris and I, we've talked about this, there's some debate. Some people say that World War II German mosquito nets were only this, like, bright lime green color, because there are a bunch of purportedly original mosquito nets that are that color. But, that said, you see original photographs of mosquito nets, and they do seem to vary in size and in color, and so I think that, you know, the Bundeswehr mosquito nets are fine without modification or recoloring or whatnot. And I believe I own several. Um, and really a lifesaver in these conditions. For people who don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about a, uh, a little net that just goes over your helmet and your head and like has a little drawstring so you can kind of tie it around your head. And I also have several of these. All of mine are Bundeswehr surplus. Um, I could probably spend an entire hour making the case for why I think that it's likely that there were uh, Wehrmacht mosquito nets that were uh, similar, if not absolutely identical to the various myriad different shades of and styles of post-war net, uh, but I'll, I'll like leave that. Maybe we'll do a Patreon exclusive episode. Sure, I mean it's a bit that. of like an odd hot button topic with some people. I feel like, but well, you know, well, basically there is uh, there was a warehouse find in the 1990s of supposedly there was a warehouse find in the 1990s where tons and tons of unissued maker marked and dated mosquito nets were found and all of those nets are all the same color and those are almost all of the nets that are available on the collector market today come from this supposed find so um a lot of reenactors are just looking at original nets they see that they're all the same color and they think well this is the color that they're supposed to be if that was true I believe that would be the only item in the entire uh, arsenal of all the different equipment items of every kind used by the Wehrmacht where they were able to standardize a color shade. You know, every other type of equipment, whether it's painted metal or fabric, exists in countless shades. Um, but yeah, I having a mosquito net makes a big difference. That night in the swamp that I'm thinking back on, I didn't have the mosquito net. Uh, I did find that mosquitoes could not bite through the Zeltbahn. So if I covered myself with my Zeltbahn, the mosquitoes, some could get in, but they couldn't just like land and bite. Uh, but of course, this was a really, really hot and humid night. So the, the Zeltbahn tent, it doesn't really like breathe when you're using it as bedding. So my, the condensation from my breath and like the, the, you know, the humidity from my breath combined with the humidity of the air was making it absolutely intolerable underneath the Zeltbahn. So I kind of like had it so that my nose was sticking out the like head hole in the center of the Zeltbahn. 
uh, as a sort of a snorkel. And then in the morning I woke up and I had like a ton of mosquito bites on my nose. Two memories come to mind. One memory from the only Fort Mifflin summer event I've ever done um, back in, oh geez, must have been like 2016, 2017. It was a while back. Um, but I remember the event sort of devolved into kind of a party atmosphere. Um, and Fort Mifflin is surrounded by a swamp. Now in the winter when we do that event, the swamp is, you know, sometimes frozen over. Um, but bugs are not bugs are not an issue in december or january but in july when this event was there were a lot of bugs and i may or may not have passed out on the rampart uh after enjoying uh more than one alcoholic beverage and i remember waking up to an airplane screaming over because the event is or the site is very near the philadelphia international airport and just being covered in bug bites. It looked like I had measles or something. <laughs> yeah. So no, it's crazy when you're outside at night, you know. Um, I'm sure people who other reenactors know exactly what I'm talking about. People who do camping know what I'm talking about. Like the number of bugs in certain situations outside can just be so insane. Sure, sure. And also too, so I remember so last summer I did that uh, Smolensk event out in Indiana, which was a good time. And I recall sort of similar to Chris's experience of trying to swaddle up. Um, I had this foxhole, which I dug. I, I didn't dig the whole thing myself, but I enlarged it myself. And at one point during the action, I actually had relieved myself in a corner of it. So I was trying to avoid that particular corner if I could help it. Um, and... You know, I was, it was gritty. I think I had a, I would have used my plush above me uh, to cover me from insects, but um, I had it as a ground cover and it was already covered in dirt. And so the only protection from these insects that I had was my wool Soviet overcoat. Um, and so I kind of just put that over me and just made like a little breathing hole. And uh, I mean, the bugs were still all over me, but uh, it did something, you know. You mentioned like uh, being in a foxhole. I, I used to do those events I mentioned up in Vermont, and uh, we had dug trenches at that site. And I thought it would be really, really cool to just sleep in the trench, to have that experience of going to sleep in the bottom of the trench and waking up there. But what I didn't really think about before I created this great plan is that the trench that we had dug, it was in a, a grassy meadow that was full of insects. And that trench was basically a giant trap for crawling insects. Oh, no. And so, you know, I'm laying in there and they are just all over me, crawling on me. And all I could think is one of these guys is going to crawl into my ear canal, you know, <laughs> like, and it, it was one of the most uncomfortable, most horrific nights, you know, where I, I think I wrapped, I, I don't think I had a mosquito net. I just had some kind of uh, fabric or something that I, I think I, I had my M43 cap uh, kind of down the way that you would wear it in extreme cold um, just to prevent the bugs from kind of getting into my ears. When you were growing up, Chris, did you have the playground rumor that seven spiders per year on average crawled on your throat? No, I never heard that one. That was something I heard, I think, in summer camp when I was a child, and it stuck with me because it seemed just plausible enough to be true. Well, I heard that, like, you know, you eat a certain number of spiders per year. Mm. Uh, there's also this, like, th 
theory that you're never more than three feet away from a spider no matter I, where you I've go? I've heard this. I've heard this as well. Um, I'll tell you something. When you're in the bottom of a trench in the summertime in the middle of the night, uh, you are never more than three <laughs> inches away from a million things <laughs> that are bugs. It's very true. It's very true. I uh, remember sitting in that trench at one point. This might even have been at a different event, different occasion at the same site. And I was talking to uh, Richard, our helped Phil Vable, and... We were just having a, a totally normal kind of sedate conversation, and he kind of sort of absently reached up with his hand and touched his neck, and he suddenly let out this unbelievable <laughs> cry, this sharp, loud yelp, and he, he flung his hand away in this insane, exaggerated gesture, and I was like, what the hell was that? And he was like, he was like I felt something on my neck. I reached up to kind of brush it away and I felt my fingers close around a giant object. You know, it was like, it was like the size of a, you know, felt like it was like the size of a golf ball or something. He's like, I have no idea what kind of bug that was, but uh, that was horrifying. That's very, very, very funny. Wow. I love it. I love it. The one kind of cool thing that I think I've seen in the summertime is, uh, I found I, I I was digging a foxhole at like a, I think it was like a bunker building event, um, but I was wearing my Soviet kit and I was digging a foxhole, and um, I I was digging and I was digging I was digging then I saw something and I was you know I'd been hacking at the ground pretty furiously, and I stopped um, because I saw something unusual and so I went to uncover with my hands and it was a giant salamander like we've seen what are they called like ents or efts or something yeah like the, little... eft, the uh the juvenile form of the the northern newt or whatever sure so we we see a decent amount of those probably yeah, that's like a tiny looking little lizard type yeah thing. yeah those those things are really cool but um this was like a seven-inch long, was it like the spotted salamander is the one that lives around here? Yeah, I don't know. They're like a tiger salamander or a yellow spotted salamander. It was very cool looking. It was it was very large, and uh, or relatively speaking, it was very yeah, large. Yeah, like there probably someone is listening to this thinking that like they have a, like in their yard like a salamander that's four feet long or whatever, you know, like those hellbenders or whatever they are. No, this by like our standards, you know, you're used to seeing a tiny little salamander that's like the size of your pinky, yeah. you know, where this guy is like the length of your hand. Yeah, like it was large enough that it was, I think, slightly larger than the head of my entrenching tool, you know, my lineman pattern entrenching tool. Like it's not like this isn't like Florida where it's a, an alligator, you know? Right. <laughs> I used to have one of those salamanders as a pet, and he was very nice. That's cool. That's a, that's a cool story, dude. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Like, also, too, when I did that event in Indiana, I think I might have mentioned when I did my recap of it, but uh, somebody who I think was like in a leadership position came around and basically warned me and other people that there were poisonous spiders in that area that were known to be active in the summertime. Um, and we don't really have poisonous spiders here in New England in the summer. Um, but I mean, I, I think there's probably some species, but they're not really an issue, but there are other parts of the country and the world where you really have to watch for the wildlife. I mean, sure, snakes, and snakes, scorpions, scorpions you know, snakes anyway. Yeah. yeah like it, I feel like people who live in the South or, you know, the Southwest, you know, they have to deal with all kinds of weird, creepy crawlies we don't have here. So it's just, it's interesting when you go to a different area and they have, you know, wildlife that can possibly endanger you. I remember one time we had uh, 
some bales of straw set up in a big meadow. And um, <clears throat> I think it was supposed to rain a little bit. So we just had them uh, underneath a big dark canvas tarp. And at some point I had to like get the tarp or whatever. So I this big dark colored canvas tarp had been in the sun all day heating up on top of these bales of straw. Oh no. <laughs> well, I moved that tarp and there were so many snakes. I have never seen so many snakes in my whole life. And not just were there so many snakes, but there was like all different kinds of snakes. They were like all different colors and patterns and stuff. It was really cool. And like, you don't really think about sometimes what kind of wildlife is out there in these places where we do these events. But when you're doing events in the summer, like you encounter it. We may have talked about this before, but I feel like reenacting presents an opportunity to see different kinds of wildlife. Like, to give an example, the only time I've seen a moose here in America um, was going to a reenactment. Um, also, to actually, at the, I think the only time I've seen a bobcat was coming back from a reenactment last summer. Um, That's really cool. Ran ac I, I was with you, dude. We ran it ran across the road. Do you what remember? What about the moose? Uh, where was that? We were going to Vermont in the wintertime, um, wow. like years back, and uh, yeah, I just remember it was like a female moose uh, on the side of the highway, uh, just kind of chilling out. That's really cool. Yeah, I do remember. That was the movie shoot with the bobcat, yeah. right? Yeah, that yep, was really yep, cool. Yep. Yeah, and like, I know people have seen bears at reenactments, um, you know, you... The hobby does put you out there in the wild and, you know, you see what lives in the wild. It's one of the things that I love about reenacting is that, you know, you, it, whether you care about nature and wildlife or in natural places or whether you don't, like, that's where the reenacting is happening and you will you will experience that. Yeah, so. like, I dug a salamander I've never seen before or since out the ground out of its burrow. I actually feel kind of bad I disturbed it, you know, I hope it didn't hurt it. Um, you know, I've... The different kinds of snakes you mentioned, like I only thought there was like one species of snake that lived in New England. There are actually several, but yeah, it's just it's cool to, it's cool what you don't know that's out there, you know, that you might encounter. A lot of former military members kind of are drawn to reenacting. Some of those adrenaline rushes kind of kind of come back. There's no perfect unit out there where everything is just nirvana and, you know, there's going to be butting heads, there's going to be different ideas, there's going to be instances where it's almost like middle school or high school drama. Not only are events being cancelled, but Soviet reenactors, often reenactors who have supported the same shows for years and years, are, are essentially now being said that they're, you know, being told that they're persona non grata. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. All right, Ben, uh, we're just about out of time. Mm. Thank you very much to everyone for listening to our weather report and um, wildlife chat. Uh, thanks to all of the people who support us on Patreon. Again, really appreciate that. And uh, in two weeks, we'll be back with another episode uh, with a cool guest. So um, stay tuned for that. Stay cool, everybody. Yeah, stay cool, and I'll see you in the field. See you in the field. We love hearing what you think about the podcast. So why not let us know by reaching out in all the usual places, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for The Reenactors Corner and you'll find us there. And maybe think about supporting us via Patreon. No matter how happy or small, your monthly donations make a huge difference. You can sign up for as little as $2 a month. As ever, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retroman, for editing the podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and will join us here again at The Reenactors Corner. Corner.